You are listening to The Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. My name is Todd Pruitt. I am the pastor-elect of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you don't know where Harrisonburg, Virginia is, shame on you. It is in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And I am joined, as always, uh, by Carl Truman, who is the pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania. He is also professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary. Carl, good to see you. Good to see you, Todd, as well. And I have to say, given the fact that the time of this recording, that was a very interesting introduction, but I'll make no further comments <laughs> on that. One of the, maybe I'll write let, about let's, it one Let's of just days. hope you get the vote. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed around here. Okay. Well, uh, the topic we want to discuss today is uh, the issue of liturgy. Uh, my background, being English nonconformity, was very anti-formal liturgy. Uh, for historical reasons, way back in the 16th, 17th century, much of the struggle in the English Reformation took place uh, around details of the Book of Common Prayer. There were things in the Book of Common Prayer to which groups within the Anglican Church objected. For example, kneeling at communion, the wearing of the surplus for ordination and consecration services. Uh, and there was also the problem of state imposition. Now, I know Todd being a good American, you have no, uh, you're sitting there feeling very smug and, and proud of yourself <laughs> at this point. We won't mention Romans 13 and <laughs> what it teaches about necessary obedience to the civil magistrate, uh, who was Nero at the time, I believe, when Paul rose. Uh, but anyway, getting back to the, the English Reformation, going back to the, the godly era of. Uh, <laughs> and, of and, doesn't the, and, and it had something to do with bongos also, right? Bongo drums were, I think Cranmer particularly objected to bongo yeah, drums, yeah. so they were never actually included in the in the Book of Common Prayer's pr- provisions. Anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, English nonconformity, which arose really out of the Puritan movement of the 17th century, was anti-formal liturgy. So the kind of church where I was converted and worshipped for many years in England typically had no written liturgy. It was, we call it the, the four hymn sandwich. It would be uh, hymn, prayer, hymn, Bible reading, hymn, sermon, hymn. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no set liturgical reading, responsive reading for the right. congregation to engage in. Since coming to the States, I've developed uh, something of an appreciation for a more structured form of service. We'll perhaps talk about the details of that later. But I want to give an anecdote, uh, something that happened to me recently that impressed me relative to some of the strengths that uh, liturgical services can have. I was in Cambridge in the UK in uh, late June and happened to go along to Evensong at King's College Chapel on the Friday night. Carl, explain to the listeners real quick what Evensong is. Uh, Evensong is a, a, a service that takes place in the evening in Anglican churches. It's not on a Sunday. It's typically during, during the week. This was a Friday night. It was a, uh, the, it was a special day in the uh, liturgical calendar. I can't remember what it was. But essentially, the, the service followed the, the liturgy laid out in the Book of Common Prayer. 
Went into the service, I was with my, my youngest son. I wanted to give him a, a classic English uh, experience that didn't involve horrendous dental work. <laughs> uh, so we went to King's on the Friday evening. We sat in the, the pews. King's has one of the greatest choirs in the world. Uh, yeah, I know that you know, Todd's church probably has a super praise band, but I'd, I'd <laughs> rather I'd rather go to King's and listen to the, uh, the the choir there. And I happened to be sitting next to a young lady. She was Spanish, I think, from the, the language I heard her speaking on her cell phone later on. She was Spanish. She was Muslim because she was wearing the hijab, I would guess, in her early 20s. And we sat and we listened to Evensong. There was no preaching. There was no sermon in this service, which was probably a good thing because by and large, my, my knowledge of the preachers at King's College Chapel is that they're pretty far left on the theological spectrum. It was just the 16th, 17th century prayer book liturgy. It involved the reading of two whole chapters of the Bible, the singing of two whole psalms. It involved uh, corporate responses as they were laid out in the Book of Common Prayer. And it involved the reading of a couple of collects of set prayers by the men leading the service. As we walked out of King's that night, I reflected on what this young lady would have witnessed that night. And she would have heard more of the Word of God than she would typically hear in an evangelical church where we, so say, take the Word of God seriously. She would have heard more of the Word of God sung than would typically be the case in an evangelical mm-hmm. church where, so say, we take the Word of God seriously. She would have heard prayers that were densely saturated with the gospel. She would have witnessed an atmosphere that was reverent. She would not have seen anything that was remotely childish. Right. And she would not have heard anybody say anything that was remotely stupid. <laughs> And I was struck, the Book of Common Prayer has preserved the gospel in that chapel. Now, I don't know if anybody there believed it. Right. I don't know if the ministers there are believers or not. What I do know is that somebody wandering in off the street would have heard the gospel gospel and would have heard the word of God and would have been struck by the atmosphere of awe and reverence that pervaded the place. And I was thinking, you know, this Muslim lady— has been present at a Christian service of which I am not ashamed and of which I'm sure Christ would not be ashamed. Mm. Mm. And I was wondering, would that be the case if I'd randomly picked an evangelical church in the phone book and taken her to a service there? Could I have said that? So I want to start by saying that those out there who might want to react against liturgy simply because it's liturgy, think about some of the advantages you know. Well, and think, think, Carl. I mean, for, for those who who get heartburn at the at the mere mention of the word liturgy, um, t- tell tell them what liturgy is, and and I would also assure them that regardless of the church they attend, they've got a liturgy. Now, it may be a bad liturgy. Yeah. It may be an unbiblical liturgy. It may be a liturgy that's not shaped by the gospel at all. But they've got a liturgy. So, what is liturgy? Simply put. It's uh, well, it? it's simply the form of church service you have. Right. The four hymn sandwich is liturgy. It doesn't vary from week to week. Mm-hmm. When I was in the Free Church of Scotland, the four psalm sandwich uh, is liturgical. It doesn't vary from week to week. One could probe at a deeper level and say if you listen to pastors praying, often they use the same phrases mm-hmm. uh, week after week. They may not write them down, 
but they'll use the same phrases. They have their own conceptual vocabulary. So the choice is not whether or not a church is going to have a liturgy. The choice is, are we going to have a good liturgy? Or a bad liturgy. Exactly. Are we going to have a biblical liturgy? Are we going to have a, a gospel-shaped liturgy or not? Is it, is it going to be thoughtful? Is it going to be deliberate or something less so? Yes, and, uh, and liturgy, of course, also facilitates corporate participation. Right. It's ironic to me that many of the churches that make most play about all-member ministry and getting everybody involved are the churches which are most anti-formal liturgy, right. that they have got rid of the very tool that would allow them to do what they wish to do. Right. They've turned their corporate worship into a stage production wherein the lights, the house lights go out, the stage lights go up, Oftentimes there's even smoke brought in on the stage and the band strikes up and the performers perform. There's no formal scripture reading, no responsive readings, no prayers, no participation from the congregation. If they are singing, they can't hear themselves because of the amplification of the band. And you're absolutely right. It's a sad irony um, that the one thing they don't allow their members to do is to actually participate in corporate worship in any meaningful sense. You can't stop it. It's coming to a town near you. It used to be called contemporary. Some call it relevant. We're so cool, we call it contempervent. Young, hip guy welcoming all with graffiti and cool glasses. I welcome everybody with arms wide open, revealing my tattoo so you know I have a past. Quirky transition to band. Invite everyone to stand. Let's do it. This is the song that everyone knows. It's the song that everyone knows. But well, of course, it's very easy for us to sit here, uh, and it's also great fun for us to sit here and, and, and you know, lob hand grenades. I prefer at, that. Yes. Yeah, it's 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 fun. We we enjoy that. We I I flatter myself by thinking we do it rather well. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, one of the things we want to do on this podcast is is also offer some of our thoughts on on positive construction. Mm-hmm. So you know. What is the kind of liturgical structure you use at, at whichever church you happen to be pastor of at the moment, Todd? <laughs> we are very thoughtful to have what we would call a, a, a cross-shaped. When you or, say we, which we are we talking well, about here? Well, obviously can, can I'm define? talking about Covenant Presbyterian Church in okay. the beautiful Shenandoah Valley in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Do you want to say Church of the Savior just in case and, and then get the... <laughs> The geniuses to edit it and splice it or whatever. So. I better not say Church of the Savior because I I am I'm counting on this. So, um, but I, I did act as reference for you. I didn't count on it that much. <laughs> and they do listen to this program. And I appreciate you doing that for me. It's because I keep your secrets. But I uh, now I would say I would say we have a a, a gospel shaped liturgy. There is always a a confession of sin, corporate confession of sin. Um, there's always a, an assurance of pardon, uh, again, from the scriptures. Uh, there's always formal uh, scripture reading. 
Um, there's the, the praises of God's people through song. Um, myself and the music minister work closely to select songs that in one way or another, either directly or indirectly, um, relate to the text that is being preached um, that Sunday. But, but I, those elements of confession of sin um, and assurance of pardon are, are very, very essential, I think, to Christian worship. Um, because uh, the gospel is to not only inform the sermon, um, but the uh, the praises and the prayers of God's people as well. Yeah, there is a sense, I think, in which the worship service should be dramatic. Absolutely. That there should be movement there. Real drama, not yeah. not the not the skits, but not, the actual drama skits, of the but, gospel. But real drama, there should be movement from you know, conviction of sin, as you say, confession of sin, to... Uh, declaration of forgiveness, not in a, a, a sort of sacramental ex opere operato right. kind of way, but in a way that points people who've been exposed to the righteousness of God, points them to the sufficiency exactly. of God's Take action them to Romans in the Lord 8, Jesus Christ. And assure them of that promise. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So the, the dynamic movement of the service itself should reflect the movement, the redemptive movement of the gospel. It shouldn't just come down to the preaching of the word. And I have to say that sometimes, I, I don't often these days get to sit in a, uh, under the preaching of the word, but one of the things I love about uh, the, the liturgy we have at Cornerstone is that moment when the minister who's ever leading in worship has led the congregation in corporate confession of sin mm. and then reads the words of the gospel. It's, it's refreshment, it's meat and drink to my soul. Absolutely. And I, and I think this is, this is one of the important roles that a pastor plays because if, if you're like me and you've been raised in um, popular evangelicalism, myself in, in the Southern Baptist Church, very grateful for that. That's why I heard the gospel. Um, however, um, there tends to be a carelessness about the theology of our worship and also the theology of our preaching. And one of the important roles of the pastor is to teach the church, here's why we worship this way. Here's why we confess our sins corporately. Here's why I read this text of Scripture to you with the gospel promise. Because we really believe it's powerful. We really believe that the Holy Spirit is at work um, uh, confirming uh, these promises uh, to us. And that that's better than just seeking an emotional experience from certain chord changes in our favorite song. Really, I, I like those. Listen, <laughs> I, I, I do too. But <laughs> but that's when, when you know the 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 sad part about much uh, contemporary worship, and I'm not just talking about music style, but church but worship in the contemporary church, is that uh, we call it a worship experience precisely because we engineer the music in such a way to generate a desired response from people rather than leaning on uh, gospel promises to uh, to see God do his work. Yeah, and it comes down to a point you've made on numerous podcasts, and that is we, we don't really believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Right. Scripture is sufficient and powerful in itself. The Word goes out with power. And when the Word is reflected in the movement of the church service, the church service itself is part of Christian discipleship. Mm-hmm. And exactly. It's transformative. And in fact, I'm really glad you said that because, again, in, in contemporary evangelicalism, when we think about discipleship, we, we tend to have a very, very truncated view so that discipleship is viewed only as one person discipling another one person. Now, I'm all for that, although the Bible doesn't mandate that. Jesus had 12. But we, we have failed to see that our corporate worship gatherings are an essential part of making disciples. It's where they 
come in conformity to the Lord Jesus through the proclamation of the word, through the singing of the word, through the prayers of God's people. And I think it shows just how much we've lost our, our understanding of, of why God has called us and, and designed his people to, to meet corporately like this under the authority of his word. That, that's where he's discipling his people. Mm. Something yes. powerful happens in those moments, at least it's supposed to. Yes, and I, I would add to that that because corporate worship is so important, those leading in worship need to understand the importance of leading in prayer. One of the things that I don't think is taught at all by uh, precept at most, if not all, seminaries is leading in public prayer. Yes. Part of the issue, I think, comes down to the fact that we are uncomfortable with the idea these days of of doing anything different in public than we do in private. This idea that if if you do something in public that you're not doing in private, then the public thing is not authentic. Right. Uh, so the idea is that we, we pray in sound bites, we pray in a chatty way, privately and personally. And we therefore assume that that is acceptable when we stand in a pulpit or stand on a podium and lead a congregation in prayer. One of the things I try to emphasize to the students we have at Cornerstone is that that leading in prayer, you are leading people into the presence of God in a sense. And there's nothing wrong then with using exalted language. We need to bear in mind, of course, uh, Christ's criticism of the Pharisees. We're not heard because of our fancy words. We're not heard because of our long and elaborate prayers. But you read the prayers in, say, the Valley of Vision. You read the prayers in the Book of Common Prayer. There is a poetry to the language there that captures the imagination and is memorable. And it leads people to focus on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and on the triune God. And we need, again, to uh, going back to this Islamic lady I sat next to in, at King's, she heard prayers that were, I don't know, the state of the heart of the men praying them, mm-hmm. but they were appropriate and biblical prayers she heard that. Greetings, everyone. It's me, Matthew Moretz, and I'm here with my good friend Jehoshaphat to present to you the entire Book of Common Prayer in four minutes. The daily office starts with morning prayer, write one. Then you have an evening prayer, write one. Then you go back to a morning prayer in write two. You have a prayer service for the middle of the day. More evening prayers along with evening prayer, write two. Compline, which is meant to be said before you go to bed. And then all kinds of shorter devotions for throughout the day. And, again, there's a false notion that says if if it's... uh, authentic, then it must be spontaneous. And that's a false choice. And and, and I would say, again, also, in, in regard to using some thoughtful and, and yes, beautiful language, um, we're very grateful that God is transcendent, uh, that, that God is imminent, that is, through the Lord Jesus, but he's also still transcendent. And we ought to consider that in the language that we choose. And I would just recommend, I mean, you, you've, you've already recommended, and I, and I agree, as, as, a, as a person raised as a Southern Baptist, I can tell you um, the Book of Common Prayer is a beautiful thing to have. And I w- if you're a Protestant, I would encourage you, um, if you don't have a copy of the Book of Common Prayer, get it. I would also say the Valley of Vision is one of my favorite devotional readings there is that will help, that will teach you to pray better. Another great volume is um, by Hughes Oliphant Old um, in his, I don't know, what, seven, eight volumes on, on the history of Protestant worship and preaching. He's got a, a whole volume just on praying publicly. And it's on my, my desk in, at church right now. It's an excellent book. If you're a pastor or an elder 
and you have responsibilities to lead people in prayer, if you are a music minister, worship leader, get Hughes, Hughes Oliphant Old's book, uh, workbook on, on leading public prayer. It's what excellent. If, what if you're a pastor of arts? If you, shouldn't, you just, <laughs> shouldn't you just resign at that point? No, no. But if you are a pastor of, of um, uh, if, if, if you're a pastor of workout arts or um, uh, something like that, if, if you're a pastor of... Hey, now you're talking the PCA language. <laughs> I like it. If, I like it. If you're a pastor of aromatherapy, yeah, you'll, you'll certainly PCA want too. that. Yeah, yeah oh. you'll, you'll want that, uh, that role, <laughs> that book. Oh, good. Oh, I would also say, I would also say... Um, Christ-Centered Worship by Brian Chappell is excellent. I would say if, if I could recommend one book to a pastor or minister of music who is wanting to be more thoughtful in how they structure a service and to learn a little bit more about the history of Protestant liturgy um, so that they can be more thoughtful about, about structuring a service, kind of like we talked about, with, with a gospel shape to it that, 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 that helps display the drama of the gospel. Um, Chapel's book, Christ-Centered Worship, is excellent because he takes you through the history and the development of Protestant liturgy and then gets into practical ways uh, to apply that today. It's very, very good. Yeah, and as a basic rule of thumb, I think your congregation should be able to tell what the connection is between what is read, what is said, what is prayed, what is preached yes. on a Sunday. That the order of worship, I don't want to say you've got to follow our order of worship, that there is no one size fits all. But whatever your local circumstances, whatever the culture, community that you happen to be operating in, you need to develop a liturgical form of worship that makes sense, that makes biblical sense, that brings out the great truths of fall, redemption, reconciliation, and final eschatological glory uh, that brings those things out beautifully every Sunday morning. I would also say that if you're ever in the Ambler area, um, not too far from Westminster Seminary, you'll want to come by uh, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. And on any given Sunday, you'll find Carl Truman um, featured in a skit um, he, he's, he's, he's an excellent mime. He's an excellent mime. Uh, periodically, he will don a, a bodysuit, um, carry two very large feathered fans, and put on a particular dance um, uh, for his congregation. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, Carl, if you want to comment on that, you can, but I, I always find it quite moving. Well, uh, joke, <laughs> joking aside, Todd, I... The, the you know a couple of weeks ago I had some guy preach for me in the evening and <laughs> not only was it the first time somebody had ever preached in my pulpit without a jacket you're welcome it was also the first time they'd ever preached without a tie <laughs> and one of the li- local licentiates was preaching for me last Sunday and he turns up and he's not wearing a jacket and I say uh, you realize I've never preached in this pulpit without a jacket and uh, Dick Gaffin my session clerk turns to me and he says, well, your friend Pruitt set the precedent. <laughs> so if we're talking about lowering of basic biblical standards. I, I'm I just proud that I've master. been noticed by, by Dr. Richard Gaffin. Yeah. And, uh, that, you know, that, my, my work here is done. I if, think he yeah. said something to the effect of, you'll never eat lunch in the OPC again uh, after that as well. So uh, two more books on prayer that yes. are worth uh, looking at. Uh, Matthew Henry method of prayer. Mm, you get it excellent. free on the internet. I think Matthew yep. Henry Project mm. online, uh, and that's a great website, it. by the way. It's very yeah. good. Uh, they, they, you can also get a hard copy, which is nice from Christian Focus Publications. Great thing about that book is 
it takes you to the if you if you're praying at a wedding or praying at a funeral whatever it, you look it up in the index and it will take you to the biblical passages that you should be reflecting on when you're praying so it allows you to infuse your prayer with biblical languages because of course a prayer as i say it's a bit like a sermon you should be pointing people to the word pointing people to christ another work is samuel miller on public prayer not so well known but the great 19th century princeton and church historian of course uh, are not all Hmm. Good things. So church historians pray? Church historians do occasionally pray, okay. um, generally for job opportunities. <laughs> but, uh, no, but Samuel Miller's uh, book on, on public prayer is also, it's a little dated, but uh, to be honest... Most uh, good books on prayer are. I was going to say, I'm, I'm not sure that with all of the great and wonderful Christian literature we've got available today, good modern books on leading in public prayer uh, with the exception of Hughes Oliphant old I'm I'm stretched and Terry Johnson did leading in worship I know but I'd be I'd be pressed to find a good book on leading in prayer written yeah. in the last 10 15 20 years uh, yeah I think you're right sadly well Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, This has been the Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a casual conversation about things that count. Uh, Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, and also check in to see what the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals are up to at the alliancenet.org. Thank you, and we hope to see you next time when Todd will no doubt have been called to yet another church.